What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Now, from the very first episode of this podcast to today, there's been one company that has been by my side, and that company is BlockWorks. And today's guest, the co-founder of BlockWorks, and actually is the person responsible for this podcast. He's the one who reached out and convinced me that I should do it, but I've been waiting for a very long time to actually have him on the show. And not because he's the person who convinced me to do a podcast, but because Jason has a really unique vantage point on how the crypto space is growing, how media and data will play a pivotal role moving forward. So Jason, man, I'm glad we finally got to do this. Thanks so much for coming on. Scott, thanks for the uh, the hype up intro. I'm not sure I'm deserving of it, but it's uh, it's nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, man, you got to go big. So before yeah. we get into the questions, once again, you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, which airs twice a week. I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. This podcast is powered by BlockWorks, the fastest growing media company in the digital asset, asset space. BlockWorks has 20 Bitcoin and crypto podcasts. I'm excited to be a part of their network. Visit BlockWorks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you will not be disappointed. Now that I've talked about them, you can also check me out at thewolfofallstreets.com. IO, I'm less important. So anyways, let's get on to what actually matters here, our conversation. So you guys are building like crazy over at BlockWorks. Obviously, I have the intimate knowledge of what you guys are doing, but I saw you tweet yesterday that you had over 100 applications in a single day for jobs. That's insane. What, what are people uh, rushing to do with you guys? And, and what's it like going through all those applicants? Yeah, we got, uh, yeah, we had 118 applicants yesterday. It's crazy. So we have, we have, uh, we're hiring like crazy. We just doubled the size of the team in the last 60 days and we're going to double again this year. So it's, um, I don't know, we were joking before we hit the record button that we kind of missed the bear market days when we could get <laughs> seven to eight hours of sleep a night and uh, things were a little bit calmer, but it's crazy. Like we usually get, I don't know, five, 10, 20 applications a day. Things have started ramping up 118 applicants yesterday for we're hiring reporters. We're hiring journalists, content creators, podcast hosts, newsletter writers, we're hiring editors, we're hiring on the marketing side of things. So we need someone to come run our social media with all the content that we're putting out. We're hiring sales, right? So we can get into the BlockWorks business model, but we have a, a really uh, great sales team. So yeah, it's crazy. And then we got about 20 people who emailed us just said, I'm your perfect candidate. You don't have any roles open for me uh, based on my background, but they're just pitching us on, on different roles, which is it's cool to see that as well. That's awesome. I'm curious if you see it as a function of increased interest in crypto specifically, or is it a result of people losing jobs throughout the last year and there being sort of a less robust uh, employment market? Or do you think it's a combination of, of both? It's not people losing jobs because I think those folks, uh, like people lost jobs a year ago when COVID hit, but the job market's coming back. Um, and also when, when you look at anecdotally, when you see job uh, folks who have left their jobs or who got fired, the first thing they do is they don't go join a uh, a crypto company because right. of the nature of uh, riskiness. Those are people who just got laid off and they might, might want to go to like a Fortune 500 or a large venture back company or something like that. We um the it, it one of the best parts about my job is I get to see a crazy amount of data on who is interested in crypto because by the nature of being a media company, we have all of the we have. 20 different podcasts with webinars, conferences, newsletters. So I can actually see who the hell's interested in this stuff, right? So when people on Twitter say big banks or institutions or portfolio managers are, are interested, and I can, I can actually say, I know the 300 firms that are looking at this in real time because they're spending time on our website right now. So when you look at who to see who's applying to our jobs to tie this full circle, the people who are applying are 
folks from traditional financial and capital markets uh, and some tech people, but a lot of people are leaving finance right now, which is, I mean, you, you just got to love to see it. Yeah, you, you do. So, I mean, you guys started basically, it's my understanding, it was before I knew you, but you started basically as an event company, right? You were doing conferences and stuff. You got into podcasts. You've made a huge pivot of late, which is to be a full-on media company, right? And so like your website and all the, all the research you guys are doing, there had to be a reason that you decided to focus on that with all these other things that you have going on. So what are you seeing that made you guys decide that, you know, becoming a full-on media company, customer facing, you know, uh, public facing was, was the right move? Yeah, it's a good question. So we, I think to understand the context of this, you know, quote unquote pivot, it, which I don't even think it was really a pivot. It was more of just an extension of our existing business. I think you have to understand the beginning of our business, which was we had one goal when we set out to build BlockWorks, which, you know, it used to be called BlockWorks Group, right? It was an events business with one goal, which was to help investors from the traditional worlds of finance understand crypto. I used to work at this venture capital firm. I worked for these real old school Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns guys. I know you have a bunch of buddies who used to work at those firms. And these guys, they were angry. They were old school. I was the young guy at this venture firm. I tried convincing them to at least take a look at Bitcoin. Uh, one guy, I don't know, he's like probably 65 years old, said, all right, fine, send me some information on, on Bitcoin. So naturally, I mean, you've been in the space for a while. What I did is I pulled up Reddit and I pulled up Twitter and I sent him things from like Crypto Panda and Crypto Bobby and like Coindesk, which, you know, those are where I get my information. But if you're a 65 year old gray haired VC person from Lehman Brothers, you have zero interest in, in spending time on Reddit and Twitter, right? Especially for this kind of new asset class. And so that's what kicked off BlockWorks Group is just saying, all right, like let's translate this like in 2017, right, is all these ICOs and real scheming and scammy. And we, Mike and I would go to these events all the time and there's like pumping ICOs. And but we said there's something here. So that was the original formation of BlockWorks Group was talking to this institutional audience and saying, instead of talking about this space in terms of like ZK snarks and zero knowledge proofs, let's say, look, it's a small market cap space with a lot of room for alpha, right? And when you say that, a hedge fund manager's ears perk up. And so what we've done for the last three years is just translate crypto into a way that you know traditional capital markets and financial markets people can understand it so tying this full circle when we launched our editorial business in january we've already been doing this for three years sure. or two years but this was just it's another way to get these folks to understand the space and we can dive into it more and we can talk about sure. business yeah, well, and new business but yeah i'm really curious as to what you've learned you touched on it earlier you said you know when people talk about institutional investors or whether it's retail or who it is and these companies that are involved you said you're seeing it because they're spending time on your site so i'm curious what insights you've gotten in the past couple months maybe there's some that uh people are assuming and are completely wrong right because in 2017, we heard institutional monies here all the time and it wasn't, right? Um, totally. This time it's different. So I'm wondering <laughs> if there are any like perhaps rumors going around that can be dispelled and if not, just what you are seeing in that uh, as far as the trends with who, who is coming into the space and is interested. Yeah. So let's talk about the last few years. So 2017, uh, the market absolutely rips, right? The thing goes from like a thousand bucks to 20,000 bucks. It was insane. Everyone's making money hand over fist, but what was lacking was not the interest in the space, but the infrastructure in the space. And so that's a key differentiator, 100%. which was 
you look at companies that are huge today, like, I mean, Blockworks didn't exist back then. BlockFi didn't exist back then. BitGo was a, a, an inkling of like what it is now. Fireblocks didn't exist. So all of these infrastructure pr uh, providers who the uh, traditional asset managers are using today, they didn't exist back then. So even if an asset manager wanted to get into the space, they couldn't, right? Because they have a fiduciary responsibility uh, yeah. to protect their assets. So when I'm going and holding my money on like, I'm not going to say where I, where I hold it, but like, it's very different than where a hedge fund manager puts their Bitcoin. So right. that's what we saw over the last few years is the demand has increased, but the more important thing is the infrastructure increased. And that's the biggest differentiator between back then and now. Interest is really similar. Infrastructure is here. Now what we see today is what's interesting is um, I think there's probably too much focus on the Black Rocks and uh, Morgan Stanley's of the world. I agree. You know, the Morgan Stanley news was was absolutely massive yesterday. They manage $4 trillion. Uh, Blockworks had really good coverage of that. They're using NYDIG and Galaxy. They have an investment in NYDIG, right? So that news is important. But what's way more interesting that we see is the long tail of funds. So it's not, I'm less interested in JP Morgan getting into, into crypto and Bitcoin. What I'm interested in is are the thousands and tens of thousands of two to 10 person hedge funds around the world that are starting to allocate to Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. Also, I, the Morgan Stanley news, I was, I was kind of uh, looking into it. It's a bit misleading. I mean, it's very exciting that they're interested and that they're offering it, but they're only offering it to people who hold $2 million with Morgan Stanley and to investment firms that have $5 million with Morgan Stanley. So in my eyes, Something like that is yet another sort of white glove product and it has very little to do with actual mainstream adoption. Yeah. You know? Well, what happened behind the scenes there is, um, is there were a ton of folks who, a lot of the people who hold like $100 million at Morgan Stanley don't, didn't want to buy Bitcoin. But if right. you hold like a million dollars or a million and a half or two million, those are the group of people who are like a little, you know, they're down to take a little more risks. They want to multiply their wealth faster than... You know, if you already have a hundred million bucks, yeah, you're why? not trying to, yeah. you know, make 40%, 50% returns in a year. You're just trying to preserve, right? But the people who have like a million dollars, they see this light at the end of the tunnel where they're like, I could buy Bitcoin, turn that 1 million into 10. So what happened with Morgan Stanley is they had a lot, and this is from someone who's been working pretty closely with them. They had a lot of clients who had like a million and a half with Morgan Stanley. And by setting that at $2 million, cut them out. It says, it says, Hey, look, if you give us five, if yeah. you give us more assets, we can help you buy Bitcoin. So that's exactly nice my assumption. It's it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a great sales technique. Yeah, we just need a half million more of your money, and then we'll let you yeah. touch Bitcoin. The irony of what you just said, though, is that uh, well, if you follow the Michael Saylors and the corporations and the Teslas of the world, you would say it's the people with a hundred million who actually need to buy a significant stake in Bitcoin to protect their wealth, because obviously holding it in other assets, it's going to either depreciate or be inflated away. Certainly, if they hold it in dollars. So I'm actually like a bit surprised or I would expect that more of those huge clients would want, you know, $3 million in Bitcoin if you have $100 million, you know, something like that. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I will say one interesting insight that we have is that the, there are a lot of other Morgan Stanleys of the world, right? So even though we're kind of, I don't know, we like to turn our head at this, it is massive news, right? Yeah. And what's, you know, I, we can literally you know, kind of see a creepy amount of data on people like who's, you know, what, excuse me, organizations are looking at our web 
are reading our newsletter and some of the most the companies that are reading our newsletter more than any other organization are JP Morgan, Goldman, right? BNY Mellon, State Street, BNP Paribas. And that's where it gets interesting is Morgan Stanley is now a one-off where they're kind of like a first mover. But where it gets interesting is when every other investment bank is doing this uh, and every other asset manager is doing this because then that just makes it so that Bitcoin's another asset class. It right. makes it much more boring because the upside potential is decreased. And Ari Paul has talked a lot about this. I was, but I was just going to say, I read Ari Paul's thread just the other day. I included yeah. it in my newsletter where he basically said, you know, listen, the, the disproportionate upside opportunity was 2015 to 2018, right? Or, or whatever. Even if you got caught in the bubble, you still had those opportunities to buy at three, four thousand dollars. And maybe Bitcoin itself as an asset now becomes a bit more stable, has more upside than stocks, but it's not this like get rich sort of uh, opportunity that it was before. I, I think that's true, but I think it also discounts the rest of the space to some degree. Okay, there's plenty of uh, coins and projects and companies that are going to you know, do 100, 500,000 X multiples that are being built, uh, don't you think? I do, th- I do think so. I mean, if you look at, I think it's important to just remember though, like, if you look at coin market cap over the last, you know, 11 years, like there 7, have been, <laughs> I mean, I've been in this space long enough since I, I got, you know, I haven't, I'm not like a real OG, but I've been in it since 2015. And like, there, there's always been, there have been coins that have gone like this and cycled through and cycled through in 2017. I was so convinced that there were other things that were going to overtake Ethereum and Bitcoin and all this stuff. And I got caught in the hype cycle and, and look what's remained. It's, it's Bitcoin and Ethereum. Right. right. And so I Absolutely. think uh, there is those that potential for the 500x, but like there's also, you know, it's a risk return. Oh, it's also, so, it's a, also a zero X. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I mean, and, and it we know just that most what, of them will do that. Yeah. It just depends what type of like person you are, right? You're, yeah. you trade. And I know you yeah. also most like hold most of your coins and yeah. then you, some Absolutely. percentage of your portfolio, you, Correct. you, you trade. Right. And so it just depends what type of person you are. Right. So they're all coming. I mean, they're reading they're your website. <laughs> they saw they saw Morgan Stanley. So, so that here's a crazy is stat. going to here's happen. A, yeah, here's a crazy stat. We usually have a year ago, we were adding 10 to 20 people to our newsletter a day. We have, we have this daily newsletter. An ex-hedge Amazing. fund trader writes it. I'm I'm very biased, but I'm convinced it's by far the best newsletter in the entire space. Yeah, it almost pisses it's, me uh, off. Aside, cause I, aside cause I from, uh, no, because I, I actually yeah, read yours. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, so, okay, so 10 to 20 people were joining our newsletter a day. Yesterday, we added 365 people in one day to our newsletter. Crazy. Last last Wednesday, we added 528 people in one day to the newsletter. And the open rate I mean, it's nothing like uh, the Wolf Den's open rate, but uh, you know, our our open rate is skyrocketing as well. It's now past forty percent. We have over a forty percent open free, rate. That's crazy we're for adding a free newsletter. Yeah, hundreds of people a day, which is just um, you don't really see things like this. No, I think the standard's like ten percent or less. Yeah, I think yeah. that for a, for a free newsletter, for a daily free newsletter, if you get 20 percent to open, you're you're doing exceptionally well. Okay, so they're all coming. So what happens when they get here? What happens when every one of these investment banks, every single investment manager opens the floodgates to their clientele for Bitcoin? There, there are two paths that this goes, right? I think, okay, so there, there are a few ways to answer that question. One is the thing that everyone cares about is what price is Bitcoin going to, right? And 
I'll, th- I'll throw out numbers, right? Like I think this goes to at least 250,000 in this cycle Great. At, a, at a bare minimum, right? And what you could see is it goes to 250,000, 300,000, and, and then it falls back down. Like it's done in every other cycle, right? That's important to remember. Think 10X is from the, from the bottom or from the top or whatever it is, and then it comes back down, right? This time though could be different because if you look at who's been buying historically, and if you just look at the data, it's primarily retail. Like we talked about in 2017, there was re- retail infrastructure, but not institutional infrastructure. So in the same way that GameStop goes up and it comes down, like if you look at 2017, it was retail, it was my high school buddies and you know, yeah, same cousins and stuff like that. Bitcoin goes up and then people get scared and then the media scares them and then they sell because they don't actually care about Bitcoin. But this time you have insurance funds, you have pension funds, yeah, you have sovereign it. wealth funds. Those, they, not only are they not flipping it, they're legally not allowed to flip it. They, they legally cannot sell it, right? That's, they take so long to do due diligence. I know an insurance fund that hasn't announced that they've bought Bitcoin yet. They did due diligence for three years before buying Bitcoin. I do due diligence for like 48 hours. It's just, it's because once they buy it, they can't sell it. And that's the difference. So we could go to 250K and go down, or we could go to 250K and this could be a super cycle and we keep on ripping up to seven figures. Well, I mean, I think that rationally it makes sense because of what you just described. It will have cycles, but they'll be minimized, at least minimized to the downside because we have a more well-established floor with an asset that has a reduced supply. So it's hard to it's hard to compare it to stocks or or other things when you know that every single day that passes there's going to be less of it mined and there's more of it being removed from the market. So I agree with you. I don't think that we go to 250 and see an 85 percent drawdown. Yeah, I mean the thing to understand that more and more people are catching on to is in the same way that the U.S. dollar is designed to go down, the value is literally designed to go down. People in crypto and Bitcoin think that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's created the U.S. economy, which is the most powerful economy in the world. It's fine. That's the way that people that we designed it. And it and it's actually good, right? But it's just important to understand that. So in the way that the U.S. dollar is designed to go down, Bitcoin is fundamentally designed to go up, right? And more and more right. people are catching on. You talk about the debt-based system as being good. And I understand it's good because it functions, but most people don't understand that. And so they don't buy an asset to hedge against that. That's good if you work in the system, but also store your value elsewhere. But it's been very hard to do that throughout time. So Bitcoin maybe works well as a complement to that system if you understand it and decide to store your wealth there, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, and so for me, like that's a important, you know, important to clarify because the system's made that way, but it's not made that way to protect wealth for your average person. Yeah. Let me, let me actually flip this on you and ask you a question here, which is you, I think you went to Penn, like you yeah, Penn, Penn undergrad, yep. like one of the best schools in the world. I'm sure a bunch of your buddies went and worked in finance and everyone worked in wall street. I, you know, I went to Emory down in Atlanta at a close group of six friends, five of them went and worked in investment banking, right? It's like, that's what you do in that world. And um, I'm just curious to get your take uh, on what their, your friends' opinions who have been working in finance for 20 years, what do they think about Bitcoin right now? It's a mixed bag, to be honest, but I would say that uh, the number going up as dramatically as it has of late has made the conversations a lot easier for me. Um, in 2017, they definitely laughed. You know, speculative <laughs> bubble, it's going to pop. 
one of my friends says it's going down to $3,000 when it was at 20, he was right. So I can't, you know, it's hard to, hard to say much. Um, the thing is they left it for dead, you know, and, and it's sort of the cycle we all talk about is that, uh, they started to get interested again at 20. Holy crap. When it blew through 20 and 40, maybe I'll get serious about this, but I'll buy it a little lower on the dip. And now they're thinking about buying it in the fifties and 60,000s. But I would say that they take it more seriously as an asset now. The, the it's going to zero conversation is gone. And that, that remained for the first years and years and years that I was, I was doing this. So I do yeah. think that there's been a narrative shift or at least an opinion shift uh, where the asset and those of us who uh, participate in this market are taken more seriously than we were before. It's nice. It's a vindication because I was definitely the crazy guy, like in the padded room, screaming to myself about Bitcoin, and nobody was listening. So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, what's your What's your experience? Are your friends are, are they coming around, or were they young enough that they already were listening? My friends are really, in their forties. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I no, actually, surprisingly enough, they're not coming around because I think I think that folks don't really understand what it is and that's the biggest issue right and so like that's i mean one of the things that blockworks is trying to fix is just putting this like if you go if, if you go on coin you know i'm actually not going to mention different media companies but like if you go on a lot of these website right websites right now it's like proof of stake mechanism launches on hobie yeah, no, sidechain nobody finance smart contract and, and like my buddies go on those sites and they're like what the hell am i reading right and so like that's one of the things we're trying to fix but no, I mean, they're not buying it because at $20,000, they said, great. When it falls back down to 15, I'll buy it. When it hit 30,000, they said, great. When it goes to 20,000, I'll buy it. And now it's 60,000. And guess what they're waiting for when it goes back to 50,000, right? Yeah. And so, you know, that's just how it works. Um, and at this point, I've stopped kind of trying to uh, <laughs> to be the hype for it. But they would consider buying it, which I think, is, at least for me, that was the difference is that yeah. uh, they would. Usually yeah. there's a host of excuses well, though. You know, you know what happens, Scott, is like, I think there's this basically cycle that people take. Everybody takes it. Like truly everybody I've ever met takes this cycle, which is they say, I'm, they find Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's being talked about on CNBC or Bloomberg or their friend sends them a message about it. They get interested in Bitcoin. Then they find Ethereum and they say, guys, I think I found the new Bitcoin. There's this, I get texts all the time being like, what do, you, what do you know about Ethereum? I think I found the new Bitcoin. I'm like, I don't, first off, I don't think you found anything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they, find, they find Ethereum. Then what happens is they say, uh, in 2016, 2017, it was uh, enterprise blockchain, right? They say, oh, of Ethereum- I love the blockchain, gonna, yeah. <laughs> Ethereum is gonna change. Ethereum is gonna change X, Y, Z. So back in 2017, it was Ethereum is gonna change um, uh, enterprise blockchain. And so they'd start talking about enterprise blockchain. They say, look, Bitcoin doesn't matter. Blockchain matters. We all know that's kind of foo-foo now. Now what it is, is they say, all right, I don't like Bitcoin. I found this thing, Ethereum. Actually, I don't like Ethereum. I like this thing called DeFi. I like NFTs. Then they get into the space. They start buying it. Someone exit scams on them in DeFi or something like that. Not to say DeFi is not great, but, and then they come all the way back around to Bitcoin. For some people I that takes months. Accurate. And for some people, that takes years. Right? I never thought about that cycle. That's totally true. And the same friend of mine who said it would go down to 3,000 is now like super, super into NBA Top Shot. Exactly. You know? yeah. And just like you said, he loves NFTs. <clears throat> One day a few weeks ago, he's like, I found this site. 
I'm going to go in here. I'm, I'm in line for these packs. I don't know what's happening, but like I'm flipping them for four times the amount of money. And it, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. It harkens back to our days. It's certainly people my age of like trading baseball cards and totally and things like that. But I think you're right. And NFTs and DeFi open two completely new avenues for completely new kinds of people to find sort of a footing in the, in the crypto space, I think. Very much so. I mean, you're just talking about user adoption and another way that people can can use this stuff, right? Sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto and is 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 50 top crypto assets and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering up to 6.5 APR on Bitcoin and up to 9.5% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, up to 9.5%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's scott two five. This episode is brought to you by Mina, the world's lightest blockchain. Mina is a layer one crypto protocol that replaces the traditional blockchain with a zero knowledge proof, ensuring a super light and constant sized chain that allows participants to quickly sync and verify the network. Their upcoming mainnet launch is right around the corner and there are opportunities to participate in community leaderboard challenges for rewards. Visit minaprotocol.com wolf to find out how you can get involved and earn tokens ahead of mainnet. DeFi is where all the excitement is, but participating in it can be a nightmare. Not anymore with Matcha. Matcha makes it ridiculously easy to create a wallet, onboard new users, execute trades, and source liquidity. The best part is that it's cheaper than Uniswap and delivers the best prices on the market by aggregating all the available liquidity and routing to the best source. My favorite part of Matcha is that it offers high-level trading features like limit orders, liquidity depth visualization, gas efficiency, and more. Sign up for Matcha now at matcha.xyz slash wolf. That's M-A-T-C-H-A dot X-Y-Z slash W-O-L-F. And join the tens of thousands of traders who are already a part of the movement. So I'm, I'm curious what other trends you're seeing because now you have so much access to this data and so much insight as to who's here. Do you see a huge retail boom when you talk about 300 people signing up for a newsletter in one day? Is that, you know, 200 people that work at Goldman and Morgan Stanley, or is it like, you know, is it my mom and dad and friends who are casually interested who are coming yeah. to check out some basic information on the space? Yeah. For, so uh, the trends that I'm seeing, so let's talk about it in three buckets. The non-Blockworks related trends that I'm seeing, I just talked to, got off a call, uh, I think it was two days ago with one of the biggest VC firms in the space. And they said in the same way that so in 2018 everything that they funded uh, or excuse me in 2018 and 2019 everything that they invested in was um was infrastructure companies custodians right. picks and access lenders yeah Shuffles. exactly yeah. picks and access 2019 and 2020 what they invested in was DeFi, right 2020 and 2020 and and then a year 12 to 18 months you see that play out right 2020 to 2021, what you're seeing is they're they're investing in all of these platforms that try to take crypto into the, the mainstream, mainstream, which is NFT platforms, ticketing platforms, uh, things like that. And for anyone who's listening, who's been in the space for a while, my gut reaction to that is we've already done that. 
that stuff doesn't work, right? 26 or 2017, there's like all these ticketing platforms. It doesn't work. What I've come to realize after pushing back and getting in some like nice little debates is it, the analogy that you can draw is if you look at in 2000, there was this massive dot-com run up and then they all went, they all, it all burst, right? But like pets.com, that didn't like pets.com was a great business. It was just too early. It's yeah. just 20 years later, we have Chewy or whatever it's called. And it's a phenomenal business. It's the exact same thing as pets.com, right? There were ride sharing companies in the 2000s. Well, what you needed was an iPhone, right? But we didn't have an iPhone. So the ride sharing businesses didn't work. doesn't mean ride sharing wasn't a great business, Uber and Lyft, right? So what I think crypto is waiting for is just its iPhone moment in the same way that the dot-com companies, they needed their iPhone moment and crypto's still waiting for its iPhone moment. Well, how far is that iPhone moment away? And what do you conjecture that that could potentially be? I think things like, um, like NBA top shots, like it's not an iPhone moment, but it's starting. I don't know what the iPhone moment is, is the honest answer, but things like NBA top shots, that's starting to see. It's like what an iPhone moment could look like when yeah. within one week, tens of that, not just tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are buying crypto and they don't even know it. Right. right. Absolutely. That, that's, that's, that's so true. I think that that actually is sort of the, it will be the inevitable consequence of central bank digital currencies as well is when like uh, there becomes this just familiarity with using digital wallets, transaction, transacting digitally, that'll naturally just start to flow into Bitcoin. At least that's what I, I'm hopeful of, but I think that could be a huge moment for, for crypto. If literally central banks just start saying, Hey man, we're going to transact digitally. Right. I mean, then, because yeah. I, I've always argued that one of the biggest barriers to mainstream adoption is people just don't want to learn how to do it. Yeah. I'm unbelievably not excited about uh, central bank. Digital oh, I currencies, think they're going to be horrible. Like, they're horrible, but I think they'll push yeah, people to Bitcoin. Totally. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, eventually everyone will have a digital wallet, right? Like, you, I don't know if you've been to China, but like when you go to China, like you have, you have a, you have one app, you have an app and you have a digital wallet. It's your, it's Uber, it's your credit cards, it's your bank account. It's where you shop. It's your messaging app, right? It, it's one app and it's such a better system than what we have in the States. There are horrible data privacy things and you lose a ton of privacy and trade there, there are all these issues with it, right. right? But I think Americans have shown that a lot of Americans don't really give two shits about their privacy if it gives sure, them right. more convenience. And so, but I think what we will end up having is just a, a digital a digital wallet and it'll be crypto based and we'll use stable coins. You'll hold your Bitcoin there. You'll hold your US dollars, which are uh, CBDC. So that's what the yeah, future so, looks like. So what kind of growth are you seeing specifically? Well, let's talk about it in the podcast space, because you've been doing this for, you've been doing this for four years now, and you just decided to start your own podcast. So I want to talk about that for sure. That it's great. Um, but I'm curious why clearly you think that there's a lot of growth still in, in, in media, in crypto, if you're doing that, correct? So how's that going? And what, why'd you make that decision? Yeah. I mean, the future of, so Blockworks does one thing really well, right? And which is we help investors understand this space. We have a right. few different buckets of folks. You have asset managers, you have financial services professionals, 
Um, you have markets professionals like traders and things like that. That's our target audience. The way that people are consuming content is changing. It's changing pretty rapidly, right? So if you look at other media businesses in crypto, they're either funded by billionaires. So there are three other, three to four other media companies in crypto, right? That we pay attention to. I'm not going to name the names. One of them has raised a boatload of venture capital and is not profitable. One of them, so they're, they're losing money every year. Another one is funded by a guy who's worth probably like $10 billion at this point. Uh, another one is owned by a guy who created the you know, second biggest digital currency in, in the world. So he can bankroll them. And another one is owned by this, like, I don't know, someone in Russia who nobody knows who they're owned by. Right. And so like, when I see that, I see opportunity and I see businesses that maybe in the short term are going to make a lot of money. Like if you look at Coindesk's traffic, Coindesk is doing like 40 million page views a month right now. It's insane. It's, insane. Ama it's amazing. And I, I'm kind of talking about these companies in a bad light for right now, but like, I love, I love all of these media companies because I know yeah, how tough media is. And like, I'm friends with a lot of the people who run them, but like the way that we do things is just really differently, which is talk to a hundred of your podcast listeners. I don't think they care as much about like, you know, some of the things that they're putting out that these other media companies are putting out. I think what they, they want are podcasts. They want content in a differentiated light. They want to go deeper on articles, not just have this like clickbait pumped out on Twitter all the time. So that's what we focus on. So long-winded way of saying we're just really bullish on podcasts, on longer form video, on deeper dive articles. Um, if I had to summarize what I think other people in the space get wrong, it's I think that some of these other media companies out there try to dumb things down for their audience, right? And they treat their audience like they're, I don't know, don't understand the space. We think our audience is brilliant and we think our audience is highly intelligent and understands markets incredibly well. And so we try to hire people and build teams and content that can actually service them, the smartest minds in the space. So, so it's, a, it's a pivot away from what obviously works for the majority, but doesn't actually add any value, which we know it's like clickbait, fake news, uh, one minute videos. It's not, it's not that it adds and, no value. It's just, it's, it's the shit business model, right? Yeah. Digital media is a horror. It's a horrible business model. Uh, B2B media is an amazing business model. B2B media is, you know, uh, focusing on the decision makers, focusing on the investors, uh, Digital media like BuzzFeed, Vox, uh, uh, Vice Media, they ran out, went out and raised hundreds of millions of dollars or they got bought by billionaires. They, they lose so much money every year. And so it's, you know, that's not the game we're trying to play. I worked at Vice for six weeks, actually. And, oh, I'm uh, the, sorry in, to in the, uh, bash your uh, experience. No, no. I, <laughs> there was a reason it was only six weeks, to be quite honest yeah. with you. My <laughs> boss was, uh, my, one of my bosses was Gavin McInnes, the, the Proud Boys guy. Oh, very fun. It was, a, it was definitely an experience. Guys to like run around the office naked, sexually harassing the uh, female and male, actually. So to some degree, employees. It was a, it was a real, uh, really, really an adventure. So I'm curious your experience uh, starting a podcast because I thought it would be super easy. I didn't really know much about them. And then I got there and realized it wasn't quite as, uh, quite as simple as I thought. Have you, you've done a million of these conversations from this side. Do you find it a challenge to sit on the other side of the, of the mic? I, I love it. So Empire is 
Uh, the whole idea for Empire is, I don't know if any of your audience listens to uh, How I Built This with Guy Raz. It's awesome. Excuse me, it's this NPR podcast. But basically, I went on a, I went on a hike with uh, Pete Rizzo in December. Pete is responsible for building Coindesk. Coindesk probably wouldn't exist if Pete Rizzo didn't exist. Um, he was sharing all of these insane stories from like 2014 and 2015 and 2016 and like stories of the founders in this space and stories of like Mike Belshi from BitGo holding $20 million worth of Bitcoin under his couch. Just these insane stories. And, you know, we always focus on what's happening in the market and we focus on the news and we focus on the trends and we focus on the funding announcements and, you know, the product launches. And that's all great. But what I find more interesting is the stories behind the founders, because building a company is really fucking hard. Uh, and there's like, we always hear the good things, but there are bad things too. And that's what Empire tries to do is just uncover some of these stories. So I've loved it. I've sat down with folks like uh, Bobby Ong from, you know, one of the co-founders of CoinGecko and Joe Lubin of Ethereum and Flory Marquez of BlockFi and the stories they share about like the trials and tribulations that go into these companies is just incredible. I also find it to just be this incredible opportunity to learn from someone for an hour who would have maybe never even given you the time of day if you had called without a podcast. <laughs> I mean, everyone likes to hear True. themselves talk, True. right? So I invite them. They say, yes. And then I, I mean, it is, it is a nice little uh, networking play too. Yeah, so. it's, like a college edu- it's like a free college education from the best professors in their field. I, I just find podcasting to be incredible. I, I want to go back to what you were saying about the Coinbase, Coindesk traffic numbers because they're insane. And, all, and also I had a... I, I, I spoke with, you know, TradingView is a top 100 website in the world. I mean, given that's for stocks, Forex and crypto, but a lot of the growth is in, is in crypto. I mean, there's in, these numbers are insane. Yeah. I mean, TradingView is a top 100 website in the entire world. CoinGecko, CoinGecko literally just does like crypto data. They're a top 500 company or top 500 website in the entire world. They're, you know, they're passing up companies like wall street journal and they're it, it, it's amazing to see so i'm gonna yeah, pull up some of the data right they're here not and, that, try to... and they're not that complex i mean i'm not coin no. is amazing i use it literally i mean i i go back and forth between them and coin market cap i mean I, I use them both daily but i'm just literally going to check like simple data what's the market yeah. cap what's the trading volume what's the totally. price you know, it's not like there's, I'm sure they offer them, but I don't use them for deep insights. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awesome to see. And I think mainstream media, financial media is, is just looking, looking behind them and seeing these crypto companies come up to them and, and they're scared. So, you know, and it's, it's nuts how much traffic these companies are doing. So I just pulled up Coindesk's traffic right now in September, October, November, they were doing about 10 million a month and they were slightly behind Cointelegraph who is doing like 10 to 11 million a month. Now, last month, Coindesk had 40 million page views. Cointelegraph had 16 million page views. It's just one insane. Wow. One so six. They, yeah. And like, if we look at, um, yeah, they passed them and I'll tell you what the wall street journal did the wall street journal. Okay. So wall street journal is a little, a little ahead of them. Wall street journal did 70 million. But if you look at the Wall Street Journal, they have a flat chart. They're completely stagnant. So if you go a year ago, they were doing 70 million. Today, they still do 70 million. Coindesk, and, and if you look at, I'm not going to share BlockWorks' traffic, but we're like, it's a 
absolute hockey stick yeah. of a graph. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. insane. That's yeah. insane. It, it, what's insane is that we're even talking about them in the same breath as the Wall Street Journal. It's insane. If you had, yeah, if you had told me that three years ago, I would have laughed that like we could have a conversation, comp, you know, comparing metrics of uh, traffic between Coindesk and the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Yeah. What's nuts is after the GameStop saga, if you open the app, uh, your iPhone and looked in the app store, the top nine of the top 10 apps were trading apps. Yeah. They're tra well, they're trading apps. Yeah, right? coin, like, but I know I, Coinbase is up there. Binance US crypto, was in yeah. the top 10 in the United States because I've had exactly. those conversations. Exactly. Incredible. And yeah. And I mean, I love it. Like it, I mean, it's good and bad, right? Trading is becoming a little more entertainment than it is, but yeah, it's amazing, right? It's a, it's so fun to see. And it's cool to see, like you used to just have large portfolio managers at hedge funds trading. Now my, I don't know, cousin can trade, even though yeah. he or she knows nothing about Bitcoin or stocks. A lot of those people actually made money for once. Um, I'm curious your take on the aftermath of GameStop since you brought it up. I mean, obviously at the time there were a lot of hot takes and thoughts and whether it was actually Reddit pumping the stock or whether there was a fund behind that, I don't know. But what do you think about the fallout and if there's gonna be any like regulatory reaction to what happened? Um, there won't be regulatory, rea there, there's, there won't be a regulatory discipline to GameStop. There right. will be regulatory discipline um, that comes down on the hundreds of other GameStops that are going to happen. I can guarantee you there are at least a dozen more GameStops coming this year. What what the biggest turning point, it, it, it was actually a pivotal moment. I know it got a lot of hype, but the hype was well-deserved because it was the first time literally in history, history of the capital markets, that the retail, the retail community had more power than the institutional community, right? And that is an insane uh, paradigm shift. So what ends up, what will end up happening is there's just going to be more of these. You just saw the, my favorite one so far this year was the, I think it was the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan is kind of like the Fed in the States, yeah. but some of a portion of their company trades on the public markets. The Bank of Japan stock was pumping because of a Reddit group. That's insanity. That's literally the central bank of a country was pumping because of Reddit. So that's the aftermath. Yeah. Right. But I know that there won't be regulatory reaction against GameStop. But the question is, A, there were obviously hedge funds that were bad actors, right? I mean, Melvin Capital was basically bailed out by, this, by, the, by the sell button being turned off. But um, will there be regulatory, you know, a regulatory reaction that hurts retail for doing exactly what hedge funds and banks have been doing since the beginning of time? Because there's not, a short squeeze is not new. What's new is that a bunch of dudes on Reddit did it. Yeah. I don't think it matters, actually. I don't, Good. I, yeah, I don't think it matters. I mean, there will probably be some things that come down, but like what it, it just opens people's eyes to the fact that, um, ah, shit, who's the, there's a clearinghouse that this, this really wasn't Robin Hood. No, Rob, I mean, Robin Hood literally would have like, been insolvent trying to fill the orders. It was Citadel yeah. or something or something through it, it, Citadel. Yeah. What happened is, so there's a company called the DTCC. I bet nine out of 10 people in your audience doesn't know what the DTCC is because they shouldn't know what it is, but it's the depository trust clearing and something else, right? Right. Every single time you trade a stock in the United States, it goes through the DTCC. And there are no fast. other... <laughs> <laughs> and it ain't fast, right? So like 
you want to talk about monopolies like we're talking about like coming down on like amazon and that's not the monopoly the monopoly is the monopoly that's happening in the financial markets with companies like the dtcc where literally every single stock that's traded in america goes through them and when you buy a stock when i buy 10 shares of apple those shares are held with the dtcc so that's the system that's falling apart the other one is um the same clearing like public.com webull Robinhood. they all canceled gamestop Robinhood was just the first so they got shit on so but the problem there is not Robinhood. it's that the, it's the clearing house behind Robinhood that i forget the name of the company it starts with like an a um but that's the problem and so i think what people will realize is like you just move to DeFi and you move to bitcoin and you move to crypto because it's a different infrastructure. You can put these sexy graphic designs on top of the traditional markets, but guess what? You're still building on top of ACH, which is a 50 year old payment system. Yeah, it's it's absurd. But we have have seen that the OCC has at least uh, written on crypto. They said the banks could custody theoretically cryptocurrencies, but more importantly, to your point there, that they can start testing stable coins as competitors to SWIFT and ACH. So do you think that... crypto eventually gets incorporated to these systems and replaces them? Or do you think that we sort of run, continue to run parallel and competitive or both? No questions asked. Absolutely not. They will not adopt it. (laughs) They will not. Have you ever seen the technology, the technology that goes into the ATM system in the United Uh States is literally built on code from like the 1960s trying to get these companies to change their code base is like pulling a 10,000 pound truck, like directly up a 90 degree hill. It, it, it's not, it's not hard. It's impossible. Right. And so when you say they're like looking at crypto and things like that, I don't, I don't care about that, that cause it won't happen. What I get excited about is when, when Caitlin Long gets her banking license in Wyoming and, and when, and when Jesse at Kraken get their banking license, cause that's fundamentally a different company, like a different infrastructure that's being built coinbase will be the top five company in the entire world before we know it right whether we like that or not i know a lot of people don't like coinbase but they will be one of the most powerful companies in the entire world because they're they're built on crypto infrastructure not on this legacy infrastructure and they make money no matter what the price does, uh, which is nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got exchange, exchange business is a nice little Go down to 3000 No. <laughs> sure, why not? You know, why, why, not? Um, why not? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think that uh, regardless of your thoughts on Coinbase, it's definitely bullish for the space. And it's probably better to cheer them on if you want uh, Bitcoin to continue to, to appreciate. I, I'm getting calls from my hedge fund friends asking me about Coinbase. We're gonna do, you know, we're doing work on this company. What do you think? Um, totally. And, and I and I and I have to agree with you that it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be um, huge. Totally. I mean, what we're doing is we're climbing uh, the wall of doubt right now, right? And not my term. I think Nick Carter said it first, but you know, you have uh, things like Tether, right? Everyone's scared about Tether, and then like and then that that FUD gets dispelled. And then you have things like uh, uh, GBTC and BlockFi. And I just interviewed Flory, uh, the co-founder of BlockFi. That is just more FUD, I can assure you, after I was 
curious and questioned it. And yeah, it's just, it's just fear and uncertainty and doubt. And when these companies like Coinbase go public or eToro just announced like blank checks back $10 billion, it, now they're public companies, right? And if you are, what's in, becomes interesting is if you're a large pension, a lot of these pensions and uh, uh, like sovereign wealth funds, or not the sovereign wealth funds as much, but like the endowments, they can only buy public stock a lot sure, of the time. Sure, they need ETF, right. I mean, or, or like X stock. percentage yeah. of their portfolio has to be allocated to public stocks. So now you're going to have endowments and pensions buying not just Bitcoin, but like buying equity in Coinbase and being incentivized to increase the value of Coinbase. That it's pretty interesting. It is interesting and it allows them a way, obviously, to have proxy exposure without dealing with custody and having to buy the underlying asset. Things like, I mean, a lot of people viewed that to say that MicroStrategy is a ETF proxy, right? But all that said, I think we see an ETF this year. I don't know what your opinion is on that, but uh, I mean, we're over a trillion dollar market cap. I don't see how they can, uh, they can you know, withstand the pressure for much longer. Yeah, I mean, there was never going to be an ETF until institutions started buying. Yeah, of course. Once they, they start holding it, they're incentivized, you know, they're in with the regulators. Um, Van Eck just uh, has a new has a new ETF proposal with the SEC. SEC has 45 days to respond once they receive an ETF proposal. We'll see. I don't know. They've been denied or the proposals have been withdrawn every you only time. Have three years. Yeah. Yeah. But, th- but this time, the difference is that, well, they're just, what, two or three Bitcoin ETFs approved by the Ontario regulators. And right? they're crushing. And, so it, and they're crushing. And so if you're a a regulator in the States, why do you want to be left behind? Right? Kind of our thing though, but <laughs> I don't know if you want to, but it is kind of our thing. Um, yeah. And, and I think then when you talk about uh, endowments and pensions, I, to me, that's sort of like the ETF is the final boss in that arena. Like I just don't see a huge pension fund or pens multi-billion dollar endowment plowing into Bitcoin on Coinbase. Maybe. I just don't see it, but I think that they would buy an ETF. Yeah, I tend to wholeheartedly agree. So if that happens this year, it's over. We're done. Billion dollar Bitcoin. Let's yeah, start. we can walk away. Yeah, we can walk away. <laughs> and, the, and the podcast is done. No more. The job here is done. Yeah. No yeah. more podcasting. Well, so, yeah. so I'm curious though, with all this institutional involvement and that being the story here, does that leave behind the little guy who this was all intended for in the first place? I mean, I, you know, I, we get so excited about institutional adoption, these big names and companies buying it. We get excited about that because like it obviously increases the value of our portfolio. But at the end of the day, like my passion for Bitcoin when I really got into it was still about a way for your average person to like store wealth and protect themselves. And I think yeah. that that, do you think that that gets diminished at all as more big money and more regulation and control comes into the market? I don't think so. Um, I think one thing is like like Hal, Hal Finney, right? RIP, absolute legend. Hal Finney in one of his earliest Bitcoin notes, and for those who don't know, like Hal Finney was OG, o, as OG as you can OG get OG to Bitcoin. like day one, yeah, he, of course. Yeah, like he's the first, yeah. So I would really recommend people go read about Hal Finney if they haven't already. But like in his early Bitcoin talks in like the first month after Bitcoin was released out into the world, he talked about a, a world where the banks actually hold most of the Bitcoin, right? But the difference is you have a way to opt out. 
that's the most important thing is that you have optionality to opt out of the system, right? So now, you, you know, Bitcoin's a bearer asset. So like, yeah, eventually most of the Bitcoin will be held by the big banks and by Grayscale and people like this. That sucks. But does it suck? Like that, that's just the world we live in, right? And I think it was kind of ignorant to think that like everybody was going to self-custody all their own Bitcoin, sure. you know? And um, I don't know. I just think that Bitcoin offers a, a, the, just the optionality to kind of opt out of the system is, is the most important part of this whole thing. There's that. And then there's the ability. Uh, it's the first time in history. There's never been an asset in history where retail has had so much opportunity to front run the institutions. It's, a, even, it's amazing. You know, even, even at 250,000, we're still going to be front running the institutions because what happens is you, I mean, you know this well, like when a large hedge fund says, say there's an announcement tomorrow, which actually there's going to be some huge announcements coming soon that like funds are raising a billion dollars just to buy Bitcoin, Bitcoin only funds. They can't go buy Bitcoin right then. It takes them like six months to allocate, to get sign off. Once you raise a fund, well, then you have to go do all of this other work to go buy the Bitcoin. So yeah, I mean, we're a long way away. Bitcoin was it like, you know, in the 40,000s or something. And, you know, Michael Saylor announced he was raising another billion dollar note. And I said something to the effect on Twitter. I was like, you're literally getting a public service announcement in advance by days of this happening. And you're trying to short. Like, I, I don't understand. How can yeah, we bearish yeah, yeah. on an asset? <laughs> and we know that a billion dollar purchase is going to move the price a few percent. Right. Of course. So, but like you, you, you get, you're getting announcements of exactly what's about to happen. Yeah. It's incredible. It's like yeah. you said, it's, there's never been anything like that in history. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, I don't know. I've recently come to the realization that I will work in this industry for the rest of my life, which oh, is a, um, I don't know. It's a cool re realization to come to uh, just knowing that like, it's not really about the price and you know, this thing's going to continue going up and I, you know, pretty sure I'm, I mean, I'm pretty young right now, but I think I'm going to spend my entire life working in the, this industry. And before we know it, you know, we're talking decades out, but like, it won't be the crypto industry in the same way that there's no internet industry. Right. They, there used to be, an, there used to be literally an internet industry, like Google and Amazon late nineties. Now, now there, now there's just the internet, right? Right now there's a crypto industry before we know it every company will be a crypto company in the same way that every company is an internet-based company. Internet. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, yeah, got to have a website whether you're an internet company or not. You talked <laughs> earlier about uh, the, the difference this time being an infrastructure. Do you think that, uh, and obviously, so, you know, that meant that, uh, as you said, an institution couldn't come in in 2017 and buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and put it on a ledger and hope for the best. And there was no institutional grade custody, obviously. So literally we could talk about it, but it wasn't going to happen. Now, obviously we have OTC desks and exchanges that have liquidity for that kind of uh, price, price movement. Do you think that we have all the tools that we need now to scale the industry? Like, or, or do you think that there are still like gaping or glaring holes um, in, in the infrastructure that we're going to see built over the next few years? Uh, both. I would say, I would say yes. Um, the infrastructure is built. The infrastructure is there uh, in the same way that the infrastructure was there in 2008 to build Facebook, 
or, you know, 2004 and 2008 to build Instagram. Like the, what's the, what's the better analogy here? The infrastructure was there to build Instagram, but it wasn't there to build Snapchat. And the infrastructure that was required to build Snapchat was good enough for Snapchat, but it wasn't good enough for Oculus and virtual reality and AR, right? And the infrastructure that was needed for Oculus was good enough for Oculus, but it is not good enough for self-driving cars, right? And so it's like, there's no end, there's no point at which we're like the infrastructure, it's there, it's complete, right? Today, Fireblocks announced a $133 million raise. Last week, BlockFi announced, what was it? A $350 million raise. That's ludicrous, right? So we have the infrastructure required to buy and sell these things, but like all these platforms are going to break and they know it and they've admitted it and they said, there's nothing we can do. Coinbase can't, Coinbase can't stay online for an entire day. It's 2021. Yeah but, yeah, but I don't blame them, actually, is the difference. Like, Coinbase, if you talk to the engineers over there, it's, it's not like insane. they don't know they this. Do it. They, yeah. they just, they, it's so freaking hard to build these systems. And you, like, Brian Armstrong uh, talks about this. When they, they did a lot of modeling in, like, 2015 and 2016 to predict the 2017 bull run their numbers were off by a factor of 10, right? And they projected the most optimistic scenarios possible. That's going to happen again this time around is this bull run is going to be, people think we're in the bull run. This is like the tiny first inning, second inning of this bull run right now. This is a super cycle that is going to drive so much demand. We can't even wrap our heads around it. I mean, it's really incredible to think of it because I mean, in 2017, $60,000 Bitcoin was such an impossible dream. And now you just double it and we're well into six figures. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. I mean, I I don't know. I'm just happy looking at all the companies out there that have built through this bear market. And, you know, it's just cool to see all the people who stuck around. Um, I don't know. It's just fun. How could you not love this, right? How could you be bearish on this space right now? I, I can't. I, I definitely yeah. can't. So I know we're up against it with time. I'm just curious, what would you say, or what do you say, because you're on the front lines of this, to someone who's still skeptical and looking to get into the space? Like what very basic advice or convincing can you can you do to tell them, hey, man, you know, try it out? I would just think about it. It's like Jeff Bezos says this thing. It's like, the way that he makes decisions in his life is when he has tough decisions is regret minimal minimalization, right? And that's actually why I first bought Bitcoin is I said, would I rather put a hundred bucks into this thing and have it go to zero or put a hundred bucks? In, like, would I be more pissed if Bitcoin went from a hundred to zero than I would be if Bitcoin went from a hundred to 1000? And, and I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. So totally. like, my suggestion is, I think someone made this suggestion on your podcast the other day, which is you don't have to know what DeFi is. Just go open a MetaMask wallet and start messing around with it. You don't have to know what Bitcoin is. Just go buy some Bitcoin and, and play around. Understand what it is. Lose a little money. Have some fun. Because I, I think that would be my biggest suggestion is just have a little fun with it. Right. Take yeah. a little bit of money that you don't, that you can afford to lose. Not even 1% of your portfolio, 0.1% throw a hundred bucks into, into a Coinbase account and just play around. We have this, we have this article. If you, I think Google the investor's guide to Bitcoin Blockworks. We, I, I personally built this guide that people share with 
non-Bitcoiners. That's like, it's literally built to help non-Bitcoiners understand this space. It's every single piece is written by like an asset manager, institutional investor talking about why they're interested in the space. So first go buy some Bitcoin, then start to understand it. And if you're still not convinced, just think through that regret minimalization. Um, and, and that would be my recommendation. I love it. Hey man, you can go to Vegas with a hundred bucks and call it entertainment. Now you're going to lose it and get a few free drinks. You know, what's your risk? Just view it as a view it as an experiment and money that you don't mind uh, lighting on fire. Have a some bit. fun. This life is too short to, uh, to be uh, so focused on the money, go have some fun and buy some Bitcoin. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I love it. It's a great way to, great way to finish. So um, I really appreciate it. Where can everybody follow you, keep up with you and sign up for the newsletter and, and obviously yeah. keep up with what Blockworks is doing as well. Yeah, I, I'm I'm boring, so you don't need to follow me. I'm I'm on Twitter at Jason. He's Yenowitz, not boring. But the, yeah, but the uh, everyone should really go check out our newsletter. Uh, it's blockworks.co, blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. Subscribe to it and then reply to the newsletter. I get all the replies. Reply to it. Say, hey, I heard you on Scott. I really like the newsletter. Or, hey, I heard you on Scott. I subscribed and I hate this thing. And I'm going to re reply to you and uh, I want to learn from it. So yeah, I hope, and my DMs are open on Twitter. So yeah, get in touch. We'd love to hear from folks. Awesome. I try to steal as much of your content as humanly possible from my newsletter. Back so it's great. The years comes out at night. So I can turn do it in into the morning. The one and the same. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> love it, man. Well, thank you once again. I'm glad we finally uh, got a chance to do it. I think we've been talking about doing this for about a year. Yeah. Well, here we are. So yeah, I appreciate thank it. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Stop.